So <clears throat> this is an aside, but um, Sunday morning during the worship, I hope you noticed that all of the songs that we sang were from that throne room scene, and being with all of you as we sang those songs was amazing, because I, in my mind, could picture what we're talking about. And I, I don't know if you've ever been to a, an Alabama or Auburn game where you've been in a crowd of 100,000 people cheering the same thing, and how moving that is, and just think about how moving that is when it's about a, a game that doesn't matter, when you're with tens upon tens of thousands of believers who are all together saying worthy is the lamb that was slain. So you've got that aspect of it, plus you've got the fact that with our eyes and with our ears we are emoting and in, taking in the, the scene of, uh, uh, that John struggles to describe of the, the rainbow over the throne and the four living creatures who are crying out and the thousands of people in the white robes and thunder rolling back from the throne of God and we say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I hope that Sunday you got a sense of that, just a taste of that, because I did. And it's, this study has pushed me to worship. So we come after last week looking at the six seals being broken and how horrible that was. That is, as each seal was popped open, more of God's wrath fell on the earth. We get to this after this. And we'll see this throughout the book of the Revelation that there will be an after this, followed by John saying something like, um, See, look, I heard, and so this is John introducing a new revelation. Now, how this physically worked out where John was on Patmos, and uh, it's clearly multiple visions, but how he recorded, I I don't know. I don't know if it was one right after the other or it was over the course of a few weeks, but we know that he's saying, after this, I saw, and so let's start and just read uh, Revelation uh, chapter 6. Oh, wait. Revelation chapter 7. See? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this I looked, and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressing him, he said, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So after this, John saw this vision. It feels a lot like what we read in Malachi chapter 3 where it says, Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. I love that sentence. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall, be, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing on its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we saw the near fulfillment of this prophecy in Jesus. We saw this text in Malachi quoted several times in the New Testament. And yet we see in the book of the Revelation that we just read the the far fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi. So let's break it down. Let's see what happens. So first it's four angels. Now remember from our angels and demons study that angels are often associated with God's judgment. Whenever God was going to judge, and we, we saw this as we traced every mention of angels throughout the Bible. And if you want to see those, I think they're still online uh, on the interwebs, but uh, every mention or every time God's about to be, bring destruction, we see that. We see that very clearly when Lot uh, and his family are in Sodom and Abram is visited by, and remember we talked about the angel of the Lord and some other angels, so there was a, a Christophany, Jesus, and then some other angels who were there who they warned, send Abram to go, to go fetch out Lot and his family because Abram couldn't find uh, the, the correct number of righteous among the city of Sodom. And so just before God destroyed 
That city, he had sent angels. And we see that theme. And we see that even in the way that the Ark of the Covenant is designed. That the mercy seat of God, where God's wrath is satisfied, had two angels whose wings arced over the the Ark of the Covenant. The angels indicate God's destruction coming. Or are heralds of God's victorious... uh, um, Proclamations of God sending His Son, but even in that, we see these angels being doing that, and throughout the the Old Testament, we see that. And so, four angels coming, being sent out to the four corners. Now, what are the four corners of the earth? Some of you may have read this and said the earth is a circle, so there's not four corners. Well, first of all, actually, in one of the commentaries that I read, it went into great detail about how the earth is not actually a sphere. It's an ovoid because the the gravitational pull of the earth spinning makes the the earth kind of squish a little bit. And so there actually are places that scientists call the four corners of the earth. Pre-scientifically, I doubt that's what John was referring to here. And this is uh, a great explanation of it that Henry Morris wrote. This verse has long been derided as reflecting a naive, pre-science concept of the earth's structure, one that supposedly viewed the earth as flat with four corners. In terms of modern technology, it's essentially equivalent to what a mariner or a geologist would call the four quadrants of the compass of the four directions. And so John here saying the four angels came from the four corners is not implying that he is stupid and thinks the earth is flat. In fact, in as far back as the book of Job, we read that that. Biblical writers knew that the earth was round. And so what John is saying is the four angels come from the four quadrants, from the east, the west, the north, and the south. And so these four angels are coming in, and um, we read that again in Matthew 24. And one of the things I've tried to do as we're going through the tribulation period is show how that tracks with Matthew 24. We're actually going to, once we get just about done with the tribulation, we're going to back up and go back to Matthew 24. But in Matthew 24, 31, Jesus prophesied the same thing. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So those four angels are told to hold back the wind. And so if you read in in books and commentaries, they'll argue whether this is symbolic or is this because the wind of God is clearly showing us the wrath of God. And so is this symbolic saying to these four angels, okay, hold what you got, hold God's wrath back because if we've been popping open these seals, we get to the last seal and then all of a sudden John has a different vision. And so these four angels come and say, wait. And hit pause on all the wrath and say, we got something to take care of real quick. Let us take care of it. So the commentators want to argue whether this is symbolic or literal. And I think if you read the text, you see that the answer to that is yes. It's clearly symbolic that God's wrath, you just read the text. The, the seals are being popped. The sun, sky is being rolled up like a scroll. The sun is melting in the sky. And then all of a sudden, bam, Wait. So that is symbolic. It is also literal. They're holding back the wind. Else John wouldn't describe it as the wind that touches the sea and the wind that goes into the trees. Because anytime we've heard wind, it's one or the other, right? And so all the wind on the earth is stopped. Now, if you think about it, and uh, mom was saying that I made the writing too small again. 
If you think, and I had a, uh, some stuff on this that I ended up choosing to take out because the font had gotten so small that I couldn't read it without a magnifying glass. And so one of the things that, that I had found was is that the wind of the earth is what makes our climate what it is. So we are, longitud- are longitudinally, we are in the same place on the earth as the Middle East. Why are they hot and dry? And if you walk outside right now to go to your car, you're going to be sopping wet by the time you get there because of the humidity level. Well, the difference is, is that you've got a wind, a trade wind that comes off the coast of Africa and takes that hot air off of the Sahara. And as it's going over the, the central Atlantic, it's evaporating all that water over the Atlantic and the wind's bringing all that moisture and dumping it into the southeastern United States. And so, and that's why hurricanes happen the way that they do. That same wind, there'll be a dust storm in the Sahara that spins out into the ocean, and, and that low-pressure zone will make a hurricane. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it comes around. And we watch it. You know, James Spann gets on TV and takes his jacket off and rolls his sleeves up and says, here's this, this weather system is in the Bahamas, and we've got this model that's showing it coming here, and this model going here, so y'all better put the thing on your windows, boys. It's going to get rainy. And so what's driving all of that is wind. And wind is a powerful force. You have never lived until you've been through a for sure windstorm, a sandstorm in the desert. I have seen the wind blowing so hard that pallets, wooden pallets are flipping around. And it was blowing so hard that the 155 howitzers that we had the windward side of those howitzers the paint was stripped off of it wind can be a powerful force and so these angels stop all the wind imagine the cataclysmic climate change that that would cause so dr morris also said the circulation of the atmosphere is a mighty engine driven by energy from the sun and from the earth's rotation. The tremendous powers involved in this operation become especially obvious when they're displayed in the form of great hurricanes and blizzards and tornadoes. These winds of the earth make life possible on the earth through the hydrologic cycle. So water is picked up from here and carried here. And that's, that's how come we can, this earth is habitable. Transporting waters inland from the ocean to, to, to water to the earth. Yet the angels, only four of them, were able to turn off this gigantic engine. So four angels, just four of them, were able to go stop. And all of those winds stop. And then another angel comes up. John says he sees it coming as the sun rises. So it's coming out of the east, because those of you who, who know the sun rises in the east, and where John's sitting there on Patmos, he's, if he faced east, he'd be facing right toward Jerusalem. Now, I, the, the Bible often uses symbolically things coming out of the east because hope rises in the morning, right? So whether it, uh, if this is literal or symbolic, I don't know, but it's coming out of the sun, and it says that he has the seal of the living God. So when we read about a seal, we should all know this, right? Because the last few weeks, or yet last week, we were talking about exactly what that seal is. And so on the, the scroll... What would happen is if you had a contract or a a deed or a license, that would be rolled up. There would be a a short description of that contract, deed, license, whatever that legal document was that would be affixed to the outside of the scroll. 
and then the, the important people who could enforce that or guarantee that it was true and valid would take their signet rings. They, everybody had a ring, apparently, that was of any importance, which is where the phrase, why don't you kiss my ring? You didn't know where I was going with that sentence, did you? Uh, comes from, and would impress it in wax. And when that, that was impressed in wax, you could look at it and say, that's Caesar's. So this contract is of the utmost importance. Why, this is just sealed by some little mayor. I don't care about this contract. So the, who that seal was given, affixed to that contract, is who would enforce it. If Caesar had put out a, an edict or a decree, and I'm looking at it with his seal on it, then I better do it. We read that people did what Caesar said in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, and he, he, here he was, thousand, uh, around 800 miles from Rome. He still got up from, from where he was, and he went to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. And so even though his wife was nine months pregnant and shouldn't have been traveling, it didn't matter because Caesar said, go. And so he looked at who that decree came from and said, well, we got a choice. We either do what it said or we die. And so whose seal it is is of the utmost importance. So whose seal are we talking about here? It is the seal of the living God. No seal is greater than this. And so whatever he says is going to happen. This is the same God that looked at nothingness and said, I want a universe. Let there be light. And there was light. And it was good. So it's also juxtaposition in John's writings, the seal of the living God, with the seal of the Antichrist. We see that throughout the book of the Revelation, 13, 14, 16, 19, 20, that the Antichrist seals his guys with the mark of the beast. Now, we're going to go into great detail about the Antichrist, but I, I, I want to, to give a correction that we've kind of all thought of because of popular media and uh, may, maybe some of the TV shows or books that we've read. You, when you think of the Antichrist, if you're like me, you think this is a swarmy, wicked dude who should be shocking that anybody would follow. And the idea of the Antichrist is, is that everybody on earth wants to follow him. That he is dynamic. In fact, the idea of an Antichrist means that they say he's the Messiah. He's God. He come in human flesh. He is the Christ, the living one. This guy's awesome. And so he tries to mimic the miracles of Christ. He tries to mimic the work of our God, sometimes supernaturally. We'll read that he'll be struck down and raised from the dead. Where God's word is silent, I'll be silent. I want to go deeper into that, but I'm not going to yet. Um, so the, the, the seal of the living God is, is again, is put up against by John the fact that the Antichrist is going to have a fake seal. But God's seal will hold true. We know throughout redemptive history in the Bible, God loves to mark his people. God loves to say, those are mine and make them special. 
we've talked about the, the law. Uh, we talked in great detail um, about the fact that we have the, the entirety of the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And oftentimes, the world will look at us and say, and I, I recently, in the last two weeks, have had somebody who said, you pick and choose what you believe about the Bible. You say you believe the Bible, but you eat bacon. You say you believe the Bible, but the Bible, the law says you can't have, wear a shirt that mixes cotton and wool. When you do that, I bet you never even looked at your tag to make sure it's 100% cotton. And if you saw it was 100% cotton, you said, oh, that's going to shrink up, man. I can't do that. So you pick and choose what part of the law you're going to follow. So I, I had the privilege of explaining to this guy, well, no, that's not entirely true. I just understand that the law, had, there are three types of law written in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's a ceremonial law that is things like the priest needs to wear this, that this kind of bathing needs to happen before you go to the temple. This the kind of stuff happens. And all of that ceremony points to Jesus coming. It's foreshadowing of him. And we don't have to follow it anymore. Because he's came. So I don't, the stuff that's predicting that he's coming, it's like a poster for a concert. If the concerts happen, that's trash now. I'm not going to be all excited about the, the Bee Gees poster. I'm going to be excited that I got to hear the Bee Gees. I don't know where the Bee Gees came from. That was pretty random, cup popping up in my head. Um, but that's what that ceremonial law is. It points to Christ. There is the national penal code for Israel. Israel was a country that God was establishing from, the, the, from a group of slaves, and it was their law. Just like we have laws that say, on this kind of road, you've got to go 45 miles per hour, and if, if you have a dog, you've got to have it kept in, and you, you can't have more than three pets in each home in Glencoe. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Um, so we have these kind of laws. Well, the Old Testament has those laws. So th the <laughs> there are laws that say in the Old Testament that says, if you have a cow that breaks out of your land and kills somebody, here's the penalty for that. If it's a cow that that was the first time it ever broke out, this is the penalty. And if it's a cow that you just didn't care that it kept breaking out and you knew it was going to hurt somebody if you didn't do something about it, here's the penalty. If you had a, have a child in this country who's disobedient, this is what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. I don't live in Israel, so I don't have to follow that law. But that law tells me a lot about God. The final of the law is the moral law. Now, sometimes those overlap, just like moral law overlaps with our penal law. Morally, I know that I'm not supposed to kill anybody. There's a law in the state of Alabama. There's a law in a federal law that says you can't kill somebody. Those overlap. And so the moral law overlaps some with Israel's law. The punishment for those laws aren't applicable today, but the fact that the moral law is still there applies. Let me go back to Israel's law. The, that law doesn't apply to me, but it still tells me a lot about God. Quite a few of those laws say things like, um, do not eat a kid that's been boiled in his mother's milk. We've talked about this from the pulpit. It's not really a sin that I'm tempted with a whole lot. I'm, I've never been, you know what I'd really like to have right now? I'd like to have me a big old goat boiled in his mom's milk sandwich. Never, never worried about that. So why did God waste space in the Bible giving me that law? Because that tells me a lot about the character of God. He was telling his people, eating a goat boiled in its mother's milk was a common fertility rite. You couldn't have a baby, 
People struggled with that through since the beginning of time. And so people wanted to have babies, and so that was something that all the pagan countries around them did so that they'd have a bunch of babies. And God said, don't be like the world. I want to put my mark on you. I want you to be separate. I want you to be other. I want you to be holy because I'm holy. Be different than the world around you. You be, Let people look at you and say, oh, that's one of those Yahweh guys. That tells me a lot about God's character. God loves to put his mark on his people. They're mine. They're not this world. They're not the enemies. They're mine. And so that's exactly what we see here with this ceiling. We see that, that Israel marked their doorpost. God's angel did not have a problem finding where Israel was. He wasn't walking down the streets going, all right, so the Goldbergs, they're Jewish, so yeah, nothing's going to happen here. And I don't know about these guys. So, oh, thankfully they put the mark. No, that angel knew who everybody was that was God's chosen people and who wasn't. The idea of the mark was for them. The idea was so that they would remember, I belong to somebody. I'm his. God does that with Israel. God did that with Rachel's scarlet cord that she hung out of the window. God said, she's not going to die. She called out on my name. She told those spies that she feared your God. So spare her. And so he marked her. Ezekiel's faithful. I, I read this verse and I just loved it. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub upon which it had rested on the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through, put, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the forehead of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said, In my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one who is the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. Doesn't God's judgment always begin at the house of God? That's for free. So they began with the elders who were before them today. So here Ezekiel's faithful. Somebody, God calls on one angel to walk through the streets and put a mark Okay, this guy is mourning the abomination in Jerusalem. This guy, yep, he's God. This guy, and then someone came immediately following, and God's wrath fell out on him. We're marked with God's seal. In Ephesians 4, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed till the day of redemption. The, the Holy Spirit of God is given to us as a guarantee that God has got you. You ever do something that you know you're not supposed to do and feel the Holy Spirit of God convicting you? You ever been taken to the woodshed by God? Have you ever been in a, having an emotional experience like I would describe Sunday morning where God's Holy Spirit seems to just drop on your heart and you, you, can, you just feel like, it's not you. This is God touching my heart. That is your guarantee that you're His. If you can sin and sin and sin without conviction, you're not His. If you can be happy in your sin, you haven't been sealed. If you don't experience that drawing of God, 
then examine yourself, my friend. Because God has sealed you. We're promised that. So those angels are, are, the angel seals those people and then tells everybody, wait, stop, hold up. Do not harm the earth or sea or trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So what he's saying is, what God is saying is, is that I'm going to protect these elect that I have called to be my special servants. Now, this 144,000 is a very specific group of people. We know that there are believers that are martyred during the tribulation. We've already read about them being under the throne of God saying, how long until you exact vengeance for our death? Just last week, we read about that. So it's not saying that everybody who is a Christian is protected from death during the tribulation. What it is saying is, is that God has identified 1,200 people from every tribe of Israel 12,000, sorry, 12,000, I'm not trying to start a new religion, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel to say, they're mine, they're my special ambassadors, my special missionaries who I'm going to send out into the world in one of the most effective missionary campaign, in the most effective missionary campaign in the history of this earth. And so they are protected. They are literally unkillable. Now, I can tell you that one of the things that freed me to be able to, to go to Middle Eastern country, to be able to, to go, go to Nepal and some of the things that I've done without any fear is a long time ago. It was actually at a jubilee at White's Chapel. I heard a preacher say, and I have adopted this, that until God is finished with what he's called you to do in your life, you are indestructible. Now, it doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to come to your life. It doesn't mean that you're never going to be harmed. It doesn't mean that there's never going to be because into every life, rain's going to fall. Which tells me that if you are uh, stricken with cancer, that God's got a purpose for that. Don't waste your cancer sitting at home. One of the most humbling experiences I ever had, I had been the pastor of this church for about a week and a half, it felt like, and I got a call from the lady who was at the EBA, and she was the librarian at the EBA, and her and her husband had been missionaries in South America for 30 years. <clears throat> he had gotten some debilitating sicknesses um he i mean he was in his 80s and so it was just one thing after another and she said we have been praying about who we want to give his library to because we don't really have a need for anymore and we want you to take his books and i'm like give me an address i'll be there because i you know i I actually have a t-shirt that says when i get money i buy books if there's any left i buy food that's just the way i kind of kind of work and so I got in my car and I rushed over there and got to meet him and talk with him and, and I gave me his library but what he had he was literally in a hospital bed here and there was a wall right here for one of the first times in my life when I saw that same scene that I've seen over and over again in front of him wasn't a tv on that wall was a map and on that map had lots of little dots and all kinds of notes and drawings and lines that I didn't know or need to know. And he laid there in that bed and he prayed for these missionaries that he knew all over the world. And I thought to myself, here is this guy who is so sick that he can't get out of the bed and he is still fighting. He is still a mighty warrior for our God. Oh God, let me tie with that kind of grace. 
we are sealed. It doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to you. It means that God's got you and he's going to protect you until you do what he has you to do. And once he's done with you, do you really want to stay here? And so in this life, as long as we're serving him, we are indestructible until we're done. And then when we're done, I want to go home. And so you can't look at these 144,000 and go, man, I wish I was one of them. And I can tell you, you ain't. But I, w- I look at those 144,000 and say, they're latecomers to this. We got the same thing now. You are sealed. All right, so let's look at this list. Because, oh my, the pages and ink that has been spread on this list. I would say that most commentaries that I could find written as far back as the 1500s are divided between this list is representative of the church that John, what John is seeing is 144,000 people that's a, a symbolically the church and explaining why that is or saying that this 144,000 people, this text can be interpreted literally. I hope you know me well enough to know that I'm naturally going to fall on the side of literalism because John's not stupid. He knows how to write the word church. But I also found this argument um, very, very swaying. Any attempt to interpret Israel as the church becomes even more ridiculous because it necessitates typological interpretation that divides the church into 12 tribes coinciding with the listing. John specifically lists out each tribe. So if this was symbolic of the church, if Israel is in this text is symbolic of the church, why in the world would he take the trouble to list out every tribe and just, it's almost like he's hitting copy and paste on his word processor there in Patmos. 12,000 from the tribe of, and then click, 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 click 12 times, and then he just typed them in. Clearly, this is to be taken, John expects us to take this literally. Now, how does he know who's from the tribe of Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher and Nephtali? I don't know. He he's, has a vision from God. That's, that's an excellent point. I, I don't know if they all had T-shirts on. I'm from Gad. I, I don't know. This does tell me that the, the, the thought of the, 12, or the 10 lost tribes of Israel is fiction and that what and we see clearly in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that the tribes, although they lived in the geographical areas that they were assigned during the conquest of Joshua, we see all the time people say, "And she married this guy. He was a Gadite, and they lived here in the, with the tribe of Benjamin." And so, when those ten tribes were taken away, yes, the vast majority of the population of those ten tribes was taken away, but there's still Gadites that were living in Jerusalem. There were still Nephtaliites that were living down in the area where Ephraim was. And so, if you want to know what the 12 tribes look like, go to Israel. Or, go to your local Jewish community center. There aren't any lost tribes. Especially not us. And I've heard some really aberrant theology that's trying to push itself toward white supremacy that says... White folk are one of the lost ten tribes. And that is silliness, superstitious mumbo-jumbo. It's just the reality. If you want to pretend you are, 
You can also pretend that you're a Cherokee princess. You can pretend whatever you are, whatever. I don't care. But don't try to let it inform your theology. And in this church, at North Glencoe Baptist Church, I've had a father that come in and tried to argue that his daughter shouldn't date a black guy because of the Old Testament prohibitions against intermarriage. And I said, I'm not going to discuss what your daughter does or doesn't do. That's up to you and your family. It's none of my business. But I can tell you that taking those verses and applying it to this situation is folly. Because when those verses were written, your family was in Germany eating itself. Running around in the woods throwing spears at critters. You aren't the chosen ones in there. Now you are in Romans chapter 9 grafted into the vine. But don't do that. Don't play fast and loose with that. Okay, this was some more of the notes that I had to take out. So I, wanna, I want to, if you look at the listing, Judah, then Reuben, then Gad, then Asher, that is very strange. And I, I want to read from, from John MacArthur's uh, Revelation 1 through 11. The specific tribal names in this list raise some interesting questions. First, however, it should be noted that there is no standard way of listing the 12 tribes. And what I hope popped out at you was some of the tribes are missing. And Joseph is called a tribe. And Joseph isn't called a tribe in the Old Testament. There are at least 19 different ways that the tribes are listed in the Old Testament, none of which agree with the list that's given here. In the Old Testament list, sometimes the order is given by birth. Example is Genesis 29. At other times, it's in order of Jacob's blessing. We see that in Genesis 49. In order of the way that they encamped around the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. We see that in Numbers 2, Numbers 31. The order of blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy 27. The order of Moses' blessing in Deuteronomy 33. The order of the princes in Numbers 1, 5 through 15. The order of inheritance in Joshua 13, 7. By orders of the wives and concubines in 1 Chronicles 2. And by orders of the gates of, of the city of Jerusalem in the book of Ezekiel. And so we can't look at this list and try to say, to, I don't think there's a code here is what I'm trying to get at. I think that J- John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a list. But I think that we don't have enough information to, to go from this. And some people try to say, well, we have Joseph here, but we don't have Benjamin. So, our, Yeah, we do have Benjamin. We don't have, I'm trying to think the, of, of um, Joseph's sons that's not listed here. But Dan, so we don't have Dan. And so Dan was, the Danites were known to be idolaters, and so God cuts them off. I, there may be some of that, that here, but I think that we have to be careful with that because there are no agreements with this list with the Old Testament, with the Old Testament lists that are given. We know we can read these, and we know the story of all of these guys. But what, what we can say is, is that all 144,000 of these missionaries are coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. How they're labeled, I, I don't know. And again, we are sitting where the Old Testament guys were sitting 2,000 years ago trying to figure out, okay, how do we have a king who's a suffering servant and a king that rules with a rod of iron? Those two things don't go together. 
and we have that near and far translation of in Isaiah, there is a, a, a virgin who will bring forth a child. And then the angel translate, takes that already fulfilled near prophecy and applies it to Jesus. So imagine them trying to figure out what's going to happen with this Jesus God. They, know, they could figure out that he was born in Jerusalem. They could figure out some of the, I mean, in Bethlehem. They could figure out some of the stuff about it. But Paul himself says, this is a great mystery that's now been revealed to us. And so as we read these sort of things, it, I found it interesting on this list that if I read a commentary from the 16th century and read a commentary from the 19th century and read a commentary written today, it told me more about the cultures that the book was written in than it did about the text, if that makes any sense at all to you. And so I'm just saying that we have to sometimes look at these things and go, that's interesting, and someday I'm going to be standing around the throne and go, oh, yeah, perfect sense. Why did I not see that? So let's keep, keep moving along because it gets about to get really good. Now, what it does tell us is, and I'm quoting from uh, John MacArthur's book, this critical passage reinforces the biblical truth that God is not done with the nation of Israel. We also see that in the book of Romans. In fact, if you read Romans 9 through 11, it's explicitly stated. Though Israel failed in its mission to be a witness nation in the Old Testament, that will not be the case in the future. From the Jewish people will come the greatest missionary force the world has ever known. The result of their effort will be a redeemed Israel as promised by God and innumerable, literally unnumberable, innumerable redeemed Gentiles. Because immediately following this, we see revival breaking out on the earth. I read stories about the Welsh Revival or the revival that broke out in Europe in the 16th century or the revival that broke out in America during the Great Awakening. As Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, A Sinner in the Hands of, the, of an Angry God, John, Jonathan Edwards was severely nearsighted. At that time, the style of preaching was to work to make sure that there was no emotion in your voice because they didn't want anybody, for me, to convince anybody to get saved is what their thinking was. And so he's literally with his manuscript in front of him reading this sermon. Not the sort of thing that's going to get you any YouTube hits. And yet people were grabbing hold of the columns in the church for fear that they would drop off into hell because it didn't need a spectacle, it needed the Holy Spirit of God to fall on the place. And so, as the Great Awakening blew up across the United States, up and down the colonies, Edwards would go and George Whitfield would go out to preach and the, the churches would be closed to them because they weren't Anglican preachers and so they would preach in fields. Benjamin Franklin actually measured about how far Whitfield's voice carried as he preached and people would mid-sermon run down and fall on their face and call on God to save them. The Holy Spirit moves to the point that we literally have newspaper articles that were published in the early 1700s that said from the police department, stop bringing us the stuff you've stolen. We have no place to put it. God has forgiven you. 
Bars were shut down, not because people were out picketing saying, don't drink the devil's booze. Don't, nope, wasn't that. Wasn't that people were going door to door trying to get the county to go dry. It wasn't that people were begging people don't, not to drink. No, the bars were closed down because nobody went. And yet whenever a Bible study would be announced, they, they were literally tearing the doors off the hinges so the people standing outside could hear. That's the difference between a man built something and a God built something. And I read those stories, and I, with tears, many times have said, Oh, God, do it again! The Welsh Revival broke out in a church, and the pastor was out of town. And when he came in, he was shocked to see the lights on in the church, and he walked in the door, and the people of his congregation were all around the altar praying for God to forgive them. Revival doesn't need us. It just needs God's Spirit to fall. And so here we see these 144,000. We will see them sent out. But right now, at this, we see the result of them going out. And John says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from all tribes and languages and people, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. We talked about what, what the significance of the white robes and how uh, that signifies victory. That signifies that your work has ceased. That signifies that, that, that celebration. And so we see in this throne room scene the final fulfillment of Genesis 12 where God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless of you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see a partial fulfillment of that now. The very fact that all of us are sitting in here right now talking about a son of Abram and celebrating the Lamb tells me that this verse has already been partially fulfilled. We will see the final fulfillment of this when this 144,000 sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go out into the world to spread the gospel and a number that cannot be numbered respond. Isn't it beautiful that in the midst of everything that we're going to read about the Antichrist coming in and, and all of this wickedness and evil, that in the midst of all of that, there's a great revival God never sleeps. And so before John, John stops in the middle. The seals are being popped. This chapter feels so unnatural and out of place. Because if you're like me, once that fifth seal, uh, sixth seal is popped, I want to know what's happening next. Because the sixth seal was horrible. Sky's rolling up. Everything's falling apart. The sun's melting in the sky. Surely this next one's going to be, ah, what's going to happen? It's like reading a book. Then all of a sudden there's, there's an interlude, and we go back to the throne of God, and we see it's like God, uh, John is preparing us for, before we get to, to how horrible it's going to be, see that God is still in control. That he still protects his people, and that the enemy is not even slightly victorious in the midst of all this. The final thing I want us to see this innumerable crowd are the people who get saved during the tribulation. 
and they get a foretaste of the New Jerusalem. And when I, re- I read verses 15 through 17, it sounds so familiar to what we re- are going to read in 21 and 22. They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night. We will do the same in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter him with his presence. And the new Jerusalem, same thing's happening with us. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In Revelation 21, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. They get a taste of the new Jerusalem. Father God, I pray that you bless the reading of your word and the obeying of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.